This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. I'm here with Joe Brewer, who is doing water restoration work in Barachara, Colombia, and also began his career as an atmospheric scientist. So, Joe, you want to introduce more about yourself? Yeah, it's uh, really interesting to be here as someone who, 20 years ago, uh, I was studying atmospheric science at the University of Illinois, which meant I spent a lot of time doing things like on airplanes flying to conferences, uh, looking out the window and watching the shape of the clouds. And so to have a background where I was studying pattern formation and how patterns form in clouds, to flash forward 20 years and arrive in a landscape like this in the northern Andes of Colombia, where I could see how the clouds form in a way that revealed insights about how to heal a landscape. And so what I'd really like to begin with is what does it feel like to be someone who's trained as a scientist, but is really acting as a healer? And maybe this is like the difference between being a chemistry lab researcher and being a medical doctor in a way that I feel like in many ways, uh, my scientist self is in support of my healer self. And it's really my healer self that's front and center now. Um, so By maybe, healing, you mean healing the earth? I mean healing everything. Mm. I mean healing my own childhood, mm. healing my relationship to the planet, healing my relationship to other people as I watched humans destroying parts of the planet, and then also healing of soils and of um, native forest and of drainage basins for rivers. What I'm discovering is it's quite flexible. Mm. I can be a healer of all of them at the same time in different ways. Right. Cool. So tell me a little bit about what's happening with the water restoration efforts in Barachara. Well, let me start by giving a little context. Okay. So where we are is we're in the northern Andes in Colombia. We're in a place where if you looked on a map, you'd see the mountains are making a straight line going, going north to northeast, and then they make a really quick, sharp turn to the left and go toward Panama and go toward the northwest. And where we are is right in the middle of that turn. I call it the great turn in the northern Andes. And we're in a place where in the rain shadow of the mountain range to our west, which simply means there are really tall mountains, and they're so tall that as the air lifts up on the west side, it makes clouds and then it rains, and then the air that moves across to the other side has been depleted of water from all of the rain, and you're left in this dry place, this rain shadow. So I'm in a place that has a seasonal pattern of an extended dry period and an extended wet period every year. And when we're talking about water restoration here, there are a couple of elements, and we can dig into them as we go. One of them is that for the last 80 years, in different waves, there's been wave after wave of monoculture agriculture, where they cut down the native forest and grow beans and squash and corn or tobacco. And then after they degraded the land, where there are a lot of steep slopes, so after you cut down the forest, you end up with erosion patterns and topsoils being washed away. 
So now we're in a place that's becoming a desert because of deforestation and desertification through these land use practices. But also, if you looked at this landscape, it is a landscape that just screams water. There are dry waterfalls, empty riverbeds. There are channels of tributaries for large river systems. And the whole area of the turn of the Andes is canyons carved by three major river systems. So where we are, we're on a plateau that has three different rivers on three different sides. So when we talk about watershed restoration here, there's sort of a fractal quality to it. That there are very local things, like here's a wellspring on this farmer's land, or here's a stream bed that affects five or six neighbors, all the way up to three major river systems and three mountain ranges that all join together into a network of canyons. So when we're working here, we're working at all levels at once. And so we can go into what that means and how it works. But basically, if you think of it as the largest scale, it's about 500,000 hectares of land. For those who don't know what a hectare is, that's basically 50 miles by 50 miles. So you could think of that as being like a, you know, the southwest corner of the state of Missouri or something like that would be maybe 100 miles by 100 miles which means we're not really talking about that large of an area, and yet 500,000 hectares from a restoration point of view is huge, very big. And so um, maybe let's go from there. Where would you like to take this? Well, okay, so you talked about how the vegetation and the way you do agriculture actually affects the water patterns. So because of the monoculture, it's affected the rivers and the, and the desertification. So there's that link between vegetation and water. And then I think there's also a link between the vegetation, water, and the climate. So there's this kind of feedback loop. And so you're coming in and, uh, and trying to heal that whole you know, multi-pronged feedback loop. And so, so where, where are the leverage points that you've identified that you would come in and kind of try to heal this kind of feedback loop? Well, let me start by saying what I observed the first week I was here. Mm -hmm. And that I was sort of surprised because I studied atmospheric physics as an excuse to study complexity science. Mm -hmm. So I stumbled into atmospheric science. It changed my entire life. I'm very glad that I did. But really what I wanted to study was how do patterns form when there's complexity. It just happens clouds are very complex. And I got an exposure, a deep three, four year exposure into atmospheric physics. And then I went on and studied cognitive science and worked in politics and worked with social movements. And I did other kinds of work where, while I understood how the atmosphere worked, it wasn't, I wasn't applying that training specifically to what I was doing. But when I arrived here in Barichara, I went to this community reforestation project called Bioparque Monquora. And there's a place in the park where you can stand on the edge of a cliff, look down at this immaculate valley below the large river and then the mountain range further on to the west and immediately like something clicking in my brain I had seen cloud formation so much during the time that I was in graduate school that a story revealed itself to my to me instantly which was that I could see that there were clouds in all directions on the horizon to the west, there were clouds. To the east, there were clouds. To the north, to the south. All of them far away, like a circle of clouds. And when I looked directly up, the sky was blue, which means clear skies and no clouds. And so I immediately had a sense 
that there was something about the center of this circle of mountains. It's really a triangular ring of mountains that was keeping the clouds from entering into the center. And so when I began to look at satellite images, like going on Google Earth and Google Maps, and just looking at the landscape, I started to see something that in atmospheric science is called a, an urban heat island effect. Because it usually has to do with cities. An urban heat island is simply that when you cover a vegetation, you deforest it or cut down all the vegetation, and then you cover the land with concrete and asphalt, the way we have with all of our cities in the world, you have a place where as the sunlight hits the concrete, it becomes very hot, and then the heat radiates upward into the sky and creates a dome of heat. And what's interesting is that hot, dry air is heavier than um, than moist air at the same temperature. Because moist air holds water, and water has a molecular weight that is less than the average weight of the atmosphere. The air in the atmosphere is 78% nitrogen, with an atomic weight of 28, whereas water has an atomic weight of 18. And what that means is when you add water, the air becomes lighter, and that's why clouds form, the moist air rises. But if you have a hot, dry area, what that means is the heavy air sits there and you can't have moisture move in close to the ground and then rise up to make clouds. So you have this dome of hot, dry air that sits there, and it creates a barrier like an invisible wall that, creates the, that keeps the moisture out. Because I'd studied this a long time ago, I recognized that this wasn't an urban heat island. This was a rural heat island. Instead of concrete, it was bare clay and rock. After they had deforested it and taken the vegetation off with their practices of agriculture, you would see hot red clay as hard as concrete. It was basically like a ceramic clay landscape, which creates this urban heat island effect. And so by understanding these atmospheric patterns, I recognized that one of the things we would need to do is to change the vegetative cover to cover that ceramic landscape with forest. And that the more we do that, the more that we would create a cycle of moisture. And there are several levels of this because there's evapotranspiration, which is the cycling of water between the parts of the plants, the leaves of the plants, at the ground level. But also plants produce spores and pollen and flowers and other things, which creates condensation nuclei, little dust particles in the air, which makes it easier for the, the moisture in the air to form into cloud particles. But also, because the, um, the air that comes in needs to be able to continue in a condensed liquid form, if you go over a hot, dry area, it'll start to rise and evaporate. Which means you could see patterns. I would look down into the deepest part of the valley where there's a river, and I would watch morning fog like a white serpent just rising directly above the river. And then it would start to push away onto the landscape. As it came across areas with trees, it would continue. When it came across areas that were dry and exposed, it would start to evaporate and break apart. So you could already see that if you reforested those sections, you would increase the frequency that fog moves further into the territory. And this allowed me to start identifying areas for strategic reforestation. So, Could you just um, clarify a little bit this urban heat line? Because I also know that when you have hot air, the, the hot air rises, and that brings the water vapor up. So some areas, when there's hot air rising, it creates rain. 
but then there's also this urban heat dome that stops rain. So what's the difference between these two situations? The difference is whether the rising air is moist or dry. Moist air rising creates convection. Mm -hmm. Now let's just remember really quickly, what is convection? Convection is a fluid movement to move energy around. Whereas radiation is photons or electromagnetic, electromagnetic energy that propagates through some medium. And so convection is the movement of energy. The primary source of energy in the Earth's atmosphere is water changing forms. Because as water goes from vapor to liquid, it goes from a high energy state to a low energy state, the water becomes cooler and the surrounding air becomes warmer. Similarly, evaporation goes in reverse. The heat is moving from the ambient air into the water molecules. So this exchange of heat between moisture and dryness is what drives all the weather on the entire planet. So the heat island effect is when you have hot, dry air that just sits there. So imagine it becomes heavy and it becomes stratified, which just means it settles and it sits and it creates layers. And as it settles and sits, you have less movement. Whereas if you had some moist air moving into a low area and then rising up over dry air, as it rises, the atmosphere cools with elevation and that rising creates convection. That rising creates the formation of clouds. But it happens at the boundary of the dry air. But if you have hot dry air, what happens is the, the heat causes the air to expand, which means just like a balloon, it's pushing outward. So the fact that it's hot dry air creates something like a pressure wall. Mm. It's sitting, that's why it stratifies, that's why it forms layers, is that the fact that it's warm causes it to expand its expansion is that it's pushing outward because it's volume filling as a fluid, or as a gas, in this case, as a gas, it's a compressible uh, uh, material that it actually can expand. And as it expands, it pushes out the air that would otherwise come in. Whereas if the air has moisture, as it rises, it changes state. It goes from a, a vapor to a liquid, which creates uh, turbulence and convection. Or said another way, it creates fluid mixing and that fluid mixing moves the air. So the fact that it's hot, dry air at the ground means it's more likely to be stagnant. A classic example of this would be something like um, the smog that forms over a city like Los Angeles that sits in a giant bowl because of the shape of the mountains. Or if you have hot, dry, hot, dry air sitting there, all the pollution will rise up and the air floating over it will create the smog. But if the hot, dry air is mixing from the mountains coming in, like you have with the Santa Ana winds, this hot, dry air moving in, it creates mixing and creates bad air quality at the ground. And so you see this, the hot, dry air sitting on the ground creates a wall that resists the movement of other kinds of air moving in because it's expanding due to its heat. So if you want to think of it this way, you have dry air that moves into an area that's hotter, so it's coming from by the river to the middle where it's hot ceramic landscape that it starts to expand. As it expands, it creates a pressure force that pushes the other air away, which makes it harder for the, the moist air to come and enter. And it's that interaction that creates this effect. Right, okay, cool. And so part of the problem here with all the bare ground is it's both, it's both reflecting more sunlight, so it's hotter, but it's also lacking in water, and so it's, it's dry. So that's the combo that's the problematic. And that's pushing away the clouds. Cool. So, um, so, so now you've identified that 
what we really need to do is reforest and revegetate to kind of deal with this issue, this this uh, urban heat, heat island. Yeah, you know, it's fact. actually not an urban yeah, heat the, island. It's a rural, rural, rural heat island. Right. Or the, the Monte <laughs> and the Mountain heat island effect. Right, yeah, cool. <laughs> so uh, how did you go about trying to start revegetating? Or what was the things thinking that went behind that? Well, the number one issue mm-hmm. is not about ecology. The number one issue is about human culture, which is that we're in a place where this land was maintained by indigenous cultures for thousands of years. And 500 years ago, with the Spanish conquest, colonialization came in and displaced or destroyed local cultures, bringing with them the idea of private land ownership, which comes from John Locke and the birth of capitalism in Western Europe. So one of the problems is that people are divided into privately owned parcels of land. And this creates a problem, especially in an agricultural context, because that means the farmers have an incentive to compete with each other for productivity to bring their goods to market. So there's already a dynamic that incentivizes competition. Add to that a history of violence and a clan-based culture of one family against another or one political group against another. Now, we're in a region where most of the water went away during a time of privatization of land, intensive monoculture agriculture, selling into the global markets. So people growing tobacco to sell to the British Tobacco Company, which sold it to Europe and North America, as one example for this region. But also that neighbors started to fight with each other over water because the water would increase the productive yields of their agriculture. And as a result, one of the things that's in this landscape is nacimientos del agua, birthplaces of water, what we'd commonly in English call wellsprings. And if you have a wellspring on your land and your neighbor doesn't know about it, you might hide it from your neighbor. You might put in a pipe or a hose and take all that water and put it on your crops. Or if it's right at the boundary between your land and your neighbor's land, maybe both of you take pipes or hoses and extract the water for your agriculture. And because there isn't a shared incentive and a shared management framework for how to manage the land, there isn't a commons where that treats the land as everyone's, the water has been systematically destroyed. They've over-extracted the water, lowering the water table, by taking away the ground, uh, um, the vegetation cover, and by taking away the topsoils with erosion. They've taken away the land's ability to absorb water and recharge the groundwater supplies. And so there's a fundamental issue here around competition, cooperation, and intergenerational violence. So our approach to bringing the watersheds back to health has primarily been an approach of restoring trust and cooperation between neighbors because of this history. And now one thing that I remember reading back in the 90s is that most of our resource, uh, resource conflicts and regional violence in the future will be related to water, what are called water wars. But what most people don't realize is that the solution is to create water peace. And water peace is a cultural process. It's a process of truth and reconciliation. It's a process of building relationships. And so, for example, One thing that I did to begin building trust in this community is I went to that same community forest, Bio Parque Moncora, and during the time when there was rain, I would take a pickaxe, and if it was nighttime, I'd take a flashlight, and I would dig what are called contour swales, 
which is simply channels dug into the ground that are on the same level of elevation. So that when water enters, it spreads out. And then the water absorbs into the ground. And by doing this for the span of about a year, I went from being some crazy outsider to someone who actually was trustworthy that if I talked about water restoration, you could see that what I was doing was working. So a key to building trust in the first step was to be invited into a community project and to make tangible, physical interventions with my own hands. I wasn't a rich gringo from the north. I was just a crazy guy with mud on his pants, covered in water, walking around with a pickaxe with a stupid grin because it was a lot of fun to play in the rain in the tropics. And gradually, people started to trust me. And then I used that trust to bring people together who should have already been allies. But because of the long history of people preemptively distrusting each other, there were regenerative projects in this region that didn't know about each other, or they were suspicious of each other's intentions, and they had never formed an alliance. So about a year into this process, when we were raising money through crowdfunding to purchase a piece of land, interestingly called Orihendalagua, the origin of water, we also used some of the money we raised to create an advisory council for the Barichara Regeneration Fund. And I was able to use my neutral relationship between other projects to gather representatives of 15 local projects and have them share with each other their personal purposes, their history, and their projects and they built trust with each other. Now notice that there's no touching the land and sitting around a table with representatives of 15 projects. We were regenerating water by regenerating human friendship. And as we cultivated human friendship, we could begin to visit each other's projects, trust each other, and only then did these different people start to teach each other about their land practices. And here we are two and a half years later when I brought an outside water expert, Charles Upton, whose equipment we're using to record this podcast, I can bring Charles in and be trusted by everyone because of all of this groundwork we've laid in building trust in the last two and a half years so that we can talk about restoring the entire watershed. So it's really important to emphasize that, yes, I know how to dig retention ponds. Yes, I know how to build soils. Yes, I know how to plant trees. But none of that makes any difference if my neighbors come and sabotage my project, if someone buys the land from me because I'm too poor and I don't have economic viability to stay on my land, or if I have to compete with my neighbors for that economic survival. We would never be in a place of restoring an entire watershed. So this trust-building work is the foundation of watershed restoration where we live. Those 15 other projects, were they regeneration projects or were they just different social, cultural projects? All of them were regenerative projects Uh from a diversity of kinds. I'll give a couple examples. The community forest Bioparque Moncora is one of them. There's another one called Agua Santa, which is a 14-hectare regenerative agroforestry project. There's another one that is the reserve that's by the Hotel Alto del Viento, which is a cultural learning center to preserve knowledge of natural fibers and, um, and natural weaving practices with native plants. But it's agroforestry mixed together with cultural preservation. There's another one called La Huerta Comunitaria, the community garden, which is 16 families that came together during the pandemic to create food sovereignty, to grow food together and build soils together. 
So just with these couple of examples, you can already see that these are projects that already existed, or the one that was formed during the pandemic started when I was only here for about four months. But by the time we formed this advisory council for the Barichara Fund, they were all established as their own projects. All I did was come in as a neutral player, a neutral actor, and say, I bring support to all of you, but only if you all cooperate with each other. And literally that was, here is 30 million Colombian pesos, about 8,000 US dollars. What is the best use of this money for the entire territory? How do we create criteria for how we use this money? What are our priority, priorities? And how do we disperse the funds? And me as the guy that brought the money cannot make any of those decisions. Only you as local people who know the territory and the land can make these decisions. And with all of the transparency that that created, they immediately created criteria and priorities that no one could game for their own personal benefit. Mm. And this further deepened their trust with each other. So these regenerative projects were mostly a mix of landscape restoration and cultural preservation. But you can see there's another regenerative project, which is the regeneration of trust and cooperation in the community, which is what I was doing by gathering people together to form the advisory council. Mm -hmm. And I, this is another thing to say is that the nature of regeneration includes both, the culture and the land. And where they touch together is where it's most powerful. Right. Yeah, because um, the water, I mean, it flows through different people's lands. The river goes from your property. So what you do further uphill affects people downhill. And so you have to build those relationships um, and, and, and use, use some of your pro-social uh, skills. <laughs> um, do you want to just say a word or two about pro-social? So, yeah, so pro-social is a term that describes a way of relating to other people in a group. Are you cooperative? Are you generous? Are you open and non-judgmental? Are you flexible in listening to other people's perspectives and changing your point of view or actually learning from someone? All of these are aspects of being pro-social. There's also an organization called Pro-Social World, which has gathered a lot of techniques and knowledge about how to create pro-social human beings, which is also called Pro-Social. And that can be a little confusing. What this is, as a body of knowledge, is a combination of Eleanor Ostrom's core design principles for how to govern a commons, together with findings from a field called contextual behavioral science, which is a blend of the cognitive and behavioral sciences for guiding individual and, and group behavior change, together with all of the research in the evolution of cooperation and evolutionary studies. And when you put that massive body of knowledge together, you get a collection of insights, such as people will not govern together unless they have shared identity and purpose, and it's made explicit to everyone in the group, and that they will have problems and conflicts if they don't have fair and inclusive decision-making. So the things like this that have just been studied and it's known, groups don't function without it. But also, the members of the group cannot behave in that way of governing as a commons unless they're able to regulate and manage their own emotions, to remain psychologically flexible and open, to be open-minded, to be vulnerable, to be fully present, to be authentic, to be generous and giving. And so there's a body of tools and techniques from, from contextual behavioral science that helps people practice and become better at this. And you can see in some of the things that I did, bringing 30 million pesos to the table and saying, 
Will we create a shared identity around the use of this money? Do we have a way of thinking as an entire territory, where this money represents the needs of the territory? Can we identify a shared purpose that is clear enough for us to work together to disperse this money? How do we make decisions about how we use this money? How do we create criteria? How do we create priorities? All of those are using the insights from ProSocial to cultivate these trusting, cooperative behaviors. Now, one thing that's interesting is, as we did this, we needed to go in the other direction, which is ecological embeddedness. We needed to embed ourselves in the landscape itself. So one of the principal criteria of that money was to look for and maintain or increase ecological connectivity in the land. And ecological connectivity can be a drainage basin where it rains up at the top and as the water runs down, it connects the water on the land to the water below. And there's an ecological function, which is water flowing downhill, that connects the different pieces of land. Because this became a criteria for us to maintain shared identity and purpose, it also created clarity about what we would fund and what we wouldn't. So for example, when we decided to give out community grants, one of the things we funded was a young woman who specializes in bees and pollinators, and she teaches children. So we funded her to create an education program to teach elementary school in the countryside about ecological health using indicators of pollinator species like bees. And you can see how that encourages ecological connectivity because she is connecting the children to their own landscapes, which because of the shape of the land happens to be drainage basins of water. And the children in the schools are the children that live in the same valley, which is a drainage basin of water. So the landscape itself organizes the teaching of ecology and bees. It organizes it into landscape connectivity, simply because of the shape of the land where we are. If we were in the Great Plains, that connectivity may not exist. But here in these mountains, it definitely does. So that was one of the interesting things, was the pro-social process increased our ecological integrity. It made it more likely we would do things that are actually regenerative for the landscape. Yeah, so it's kind of like we, we're treating the ecosystem and the watershed as a kind of commons. And in order to treat it as a commons, we also need these pro-social skill sets. Yeah, I, I want to ask a little bit, just uh, some more specifics around what, what you did with the watershed stuff. So you said you were building a contour swale to kind of guide the rain. That was your initial, some of your initial work. So you want to explain a little bit what that entails? Yeah, so what's interesting is if you go to the Bioparque Moncora, you'll see that there's a lot of grass and quite a few trees. And someone who doesn't know ecology would say, wow, this is beautiful. Look at all these trees. Look how green it is. Because it's been raining, the grass has grown. But if you understand forest ecology, you'd see that grass and trees does not a forest make. A forest has all kinds of undergrowth and mid-level trees and tall trees and vines and everything in between. So one thing is that we need to grow the trees faster and replace this invasive grass underneath it. The other thing you'd notice is that there's a network of trails, which are hard-packed clay paths that people walk on, and about half the Bioparque looks like a, a park for this reason. If you go there during the rain, or if you happen to know how to read water in the landscape, you'll see all the erosion is on the trails. You go on those trails, it's you know fairly steep slopes, and when it rains, it runs quickly down those trails, div digging these little channels and canals, 
and moving the mud and the dirt away. So the first thing that I started to do was to go to those trails, look at where the water went from moving slowly to moving quickly, and then dig a little channel that went across the trail and then enter it into the area where the grass and trees are so that the water would be absorbed by the plant vegetation and help to accelerate the growth of plants. So in the beginning, it was nothing more than that. Now, while that's really simple, it's also transformational. If you do it long enough, it's going to change the landscape. But we didn't stop there. A year later, when we started creating a food forest in another part of Bioparque Moncora, instead of digging channels from the trail to the grass, there were no trails in this other section. There's only grass and a few trees. So we started pulling grass. But if we pull the grass, we create the same problem. Exposed ground cover, dirt, that water would run on because it's got a downhill slope. So what we started to do is to dig channels and ponds that are kind of amoeba-shaped, that are curved where their long part is on contour. It's horizontal with respect to the downhill slope. What that does is it causes water that is running to enter into these ponds. But because of the shape of the pond, the way we dug them was we dig the, the ground, dig the dirt out of the pond, and pile it up on the downhill side. And then on the downhill side, we started planting trees and bushes and other things, you know, um, succulents and cactus and other plants. And what would happen is as the water enters into that pond, it starts to infiltrate into the ground to recharge the groundwater supply. But it's also going downhill. So it'll tend to absorb down and downhill. So by building the mound of dirt on the downhill side and planting on it, the roots of the plants will seek the water as it's running underground during the rain, which creates this cycle of connection. The rainwater absorbs into the ground. When the roots are deep enough, they can actually siphon that water like a pump, pull it up into their bodies. And as they grow into larger plants, they will regulate their temperature and engage in photosynthesis by releasing water from their leaves which means that the water that's going into the ground comes out in the air. And you're starting to change the air quality. You're starting to make the air more humid. And you're creating shade, which makes the air more cool, which allows the air to stay and interact between the plant surfaces of the trees and bushes that are there. So in that place, we're doing pretty advanced water retention because we're holding the water in the ground. We're directing it to the plants. We're growing the plants in a multi-tiered forest structure. There are ground covers, there are bushes and shrubs, there are small trees, there are medium trees. Eventually there will be large trees. There are already vines growing among the bushes. Eventually there will be vines growing among the trees. And that creates a multi-level relationship of the vapor that leaves the surface of the plants to arrive on the surfaces of other plants, creating a local microclimate. And so we're actually doing ecological design of hydrological system. The whole hydrological system is changing at the scale of this reforestation work, which is currently about, you know, 150 feet by 150 feet in a little square up in the corner, and we're expanding it as we go. But the interesting thing is, even when only we had a small part of it, there was a three-year period, or three-month period during the dry season when all those bushes and shrubs stayed green without a drop of rain because they held the moisture in their bodies and in the ground. If you can imagine the ground next to it where the grass was, when I pulled the grass, it was dry five inches into the ground. And the grass was turning brown and yellow and dying out. So we changed 
the long-term relationship on an annual cycle of moisture to place on a very small piece of land in the span of a few months. And so I wanted to explain it in this way to show that the way of working with water is holistic and it involves the entire life system, all of the forest, and soil building and composting. So we did another thing is we built a, a roof for rainwater harvesting, attached a gutter to it and some water storage tanks so that we could water the baby trees we were growing in a nursery we established that we would then plant next to these retention ponds. So there we were turning the grass into compost to plant trees to build soils off the soil we built by composting the grass to increase the cycling of water through the land. Cool. So, so yeah, so the leverage points you kind of came in, you know, as an American gringo to this Colombian town was to kind of actually look at how to regenerate the ecosystem and you identified the leverage point as the water initially kind of like because if you can guide the water to because the plants need the water so you built these little swales and then you uh, uh, you took out some of the grasses that were invasive and then also built these ponds and planted new 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 vegetation and so that kind of began that whole process of regeneration and 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 it's kind of like this earth thing, but it's also at the same time an interesting social thing because people became kind of came over and looked at you and maybe at first thought you were a bit of a crazy gringo. But after a while you built the relationships and then you built relationships with other projects. So you 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 whirled together like fifteen projects and created kind of this commons pro social field. So so it's it's kind of this it's like from the from the water to the vegetation to the social and so like this kind of multi stage process and so and and then i think you're also now trying to work with different neighbors right with their land and so the uphill how do they guide the water into the landscape so it comes out in the nascimentos uh the the springs lower lower down um do you want to say a little bit about how that's going like building all this neighborhood uh cooperation around the water yeah there are two things we're doing right now that work at a larger scale one is that we're buying a piece of land 10 hectares in size where three of the neighbors are already reforesting. So in total, it's about 40 hectares. So instantly, we're practicing how do you collaborate with your neighbors to bring water and forest back. But to really bring the river back that, was in, that crosses that land, we have to work with the other neighbors upstream. And to get every one of them to buy in and participate, we have the opportunity that if we get the river flowing, the water flows downhill, the neighbors below us will benefit. So we're preparing right now to set up two watershed councils. One of them for all of the people upstream and one of them for all the people downstream. Those who would do the landscape regeneration work and those who would receive the benefits from it. So that they are able to negotiate with each other ways of providing neutral, uh, mutual support. So for example, some of the people from downstream may end up, and come, may end up coming and planting trees in the upstream. And people from the upstream may be able to benefit from some of the other things that people downstream do. Like someone upstream might have cows and realize it's damaging the soil because of the kind of land that they have, and they may put it on the land of a neighbor downstream because the neighbor downstream knows that that's helping reforest the land uphill. So these kinds of relationships need organization. And the initial organization is watershed councils. But you can already see the way of thinking is much larger in scale than just the land that we're working on. The other thing that we're doing is we're creating a learning center for syntropic agroforestry. 
We've already done one project that was in Bioparque Moncora, where we demonstrated how to create this particular kind of, food, of a food forest system, which of course will help bring water back to the land as well. Now we're planning three more workshops in the next six months, and we're designing the selection of those three to create exactly the same kind of relationships. So one of the projects will be that we're gonna teach a different kind of food forest system in the Bioparque again, so they'll have two different models in the same community space. Another one is going to go way down, down in the canyon in the low parts where there's this community garden and we're going to help them to create one. And another one is up in the higher parts in one of the agroforestry centers having one that we set up to help restore a watershed. And so the idea is that we will explain to people the selection of these places so that they understand the significance of why each one of them is where it is and what its relationship is to the others. So that we have experimental field sites for strategic reforestation and watershed restoration and workshops that teach people a kind of agroforestry that can become an economic model for their livelihoods. And by doing it in this way, you know, this is just the first stage of setting up a learning center. You can imagine after five or six years of this way of thinking that we'll be able to weave a large part of the territory. And so the key thing is that there is a group of us who thinks in this territorial way and we develop our strategies like landscape connection of ecological function for that first funding round that we did last year. And here the selection of field sites for centropic agroforestry we're bringing this bioregional or territorial scale thinking, and that's what makes it possible to work at the watershed level. Yeah, so, so some of your more medium-term goals are to kind of return the, the streams to the, the flowing year-round rather than just part of the year, and also to kind of develop an economic model based on agroforestry and, and regeneration that brings money to this area. So instead of practices that are detrimental to the environment, but kind of it's kind of like a pro, pro eco um, way of earning money. One one of the things that uh, struck me too was that you were saying that the cows, um, so the cows when they're on the slopes, they're actually detrimental. But when the cows are on the on the on the flat parts, they're actually good for the uh, for the soil. And so it's almost like it's not that whether cows are good or bad. It's just where they are. And so it's kind of like. And, and in order to put it from one property to the other, you also have to be building that relationships of the different neighbors. And this applies to other places around the world in the US and other places too, where the cows can sometimes be destroying it. And you have to work with the different properties to kind of get the cows to the right place. And so so it's it's like the eco is very interlinked with the social um, and, our, and our kind of our whole property economic structure. And so you're kind of trying to redo a lot of this economic, because like, your funding is a lot coming from gift economy, right? Donations. So it's kind of you're building this kind of gift economy, um, which depends on that pro-social. Um, you need to create the pro-social culture to kind of help bring in that money, and then that money is then kind of gifted to various. It's almost like community parcelled out to the community projects, which then feeds the whole system to then have money to the whole um, system. So. I mean, it's a very big, ambitious project, and it's pretty amazing that it's, you know, it seems to be well on its like third or fourth step to success. What I find really interesting in it is the more it works, the more it works. <laughs> and this is really powerful, is that I already knew, like you could say, I did my homework, I know what the research says. This should work. Mm. So let's try it. 
But notice trying it isn't a laboratory experiment. Trying it is building good relationships with people. Mm. And so there's a beautiful byproduct. I have friends. I have community. I have a daughter who's five years old, and she is raised by members of the community with lots of other families and kids. And so this way of relating to each other is actually the basis of all of it. We're changing how we relate. How do I relate to myself? How do I relate to my conqueror, colonizer, dominator, Western European history as a white guy from the North? How do I relate to the future of a planet that's in crisis? How do I relate to my own child? And then on and on to how do we relate to water in this territory? How do neighbors relate to each other? All of it in one way or another is about relationships. And so what's interesting is the more it works, the more it works. Mm. The more friends you have, the more friends you have, right. right? And so that's what's so amazing about this is that it may seem like magic, but it's actually just a common sense way of being human that we've mostly forgotten because the signaling of our social contexts tells us that we're autonomous individuals, that we need to compete for our survival, that um, if I don't have a roof over my head, I'm going to die because who would take care of me? And how do I get a roof over my head? I compete for that job. And so we end up in just a bunch of social signals that tell us how to live that undermine this ability to be friends with each other. And we still navigate some friendships, like once we're inside something like a commons, I can be friends with my coworkers because we are the ones who make everyone else compete to be our friends by applying for jobs with us. So you see how this happens over and over again. Once we're aware that it's really kindness, generosity, cooperation between people, which is what friends do, that as we cultivate friendship, we create a kind of abundance. The more friends we have, the more we can do for each other. And the more our needs can be met by someone within our network of friends. And so that's what I find amazing about this is that it is not just a joke to say the more it works, the more it works. Mm. It's that it really, as it works, it generates the ability for more of it to work. Right. Um, but we have to be very mindful to maintain and to tend to and care for our relationships right. continually. Yeah, it's basically a positive feedback loop. And I mean, in some ways, you know, there's a saying, water begets water. So as you put more water into the soil, it actually allows the water then to absorb even more water because of all the microorganisms and stuff it grows. Um, and it also seems like there's a medium or long-term goal of actually affecting the climate in this region, right? So we, you talked earlier about the rural heat dome. So as you revegetate by, by first bringing the water that allows the vegetation to grow, that will then affect, that will allow the water vapor to rise in the air and create more clouds. And, uh, and are you seeing that maybe you might actually even affect rain patterns in the area in this process? I think we will easily affect rain patterns. And the, way, the reason I'm so confident is that I watched the, the fog forming on the rivers. And like I was saying earlier about the disruption of the fog by going over a hot, dry area, if I change that pattern, I've changed the weather of the area. Because a lot of moisture comes at night through dewdrops, condensation of water on the surfaces of plants. And if there's fog, or if just there's, uh, if it's easier for moisture to arrive, you'll change the regional climate. And what's interesting is the thing that stops that from happening is fragmentation. Fragmentation. So if we do something like, here we are in Barichara, we're up above about a 500 foot cliff on the, on the edge of a plateau. 
and there's a drop and then there's rolling hills and then another drop to the big river below. If the fog can continually get from the river up to the top of that plateau, we've changed the region's climate mm. just by doing that. Now, if you add to that, that the way we're organizing one drainage at a time, one stream at a time, you can replicate it. If you do it in one stream bed, do it in the next. If you do it in the next, do it in another one. And if that is happening simultaneously in many places, then like a fractal, it forms itself everywhere at once. I don't need to regenerate 500,000 hectares of land. I just need to get, you know, 500 people to be participating each in 1,000 hectares of land. And 500 people in 1,000 hectares of land is still big. It's okay. Now let's have 100 people in 100 hectares of land. Now maybe we're talking about 10 farms and 10 families. And now we're at a scale that you can see it starts to make sense. So we have to understand how to cluster our thinking so that that large scale is actually a parallel process of many of the same things happening on a small scale, but connected to each other through a logic, a patterning logic of the landscape itself, which in this case is the stream beds. The water connects the entire landscape. Mm. So we use the water to organize the people. And by doing that, the people will bring back the water. Right. And yeah, so it's kind of like this, the, you use the word fractal, so that it's kind of like this scale-free, and I know you're into complex systems, so like there's a, there's a way in, uh, in, 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 in critical points in, in complex systems where there's a scale-free thing, where things happening on a small scale ripple out to larger and larger scales. So, so you're prototyping first you know first by yourself on a on the bio park and then but kind of growing to the larger region so you're moving up in scale but this can then move maybe to the larger area within colombia then maybe colombia and then and and you're also prototyping how the climate can uh, you know how you can affect the climate so if you're bringing back the rain and the fog i mean that could create a different biome right so in so that that actually changes the whole vegetation that can survive and so you're actually kind of doing biome phase transformations and and so instead of doing this phase transformation to desertification, we're trying to prototype throughout the Earth this phase transformation to different types of more hydrated biomes. Yeah, if you wanted to think about this at the larger scale, so I'm talking about a little channel, a little, 500,000 hectares, a little channel of canyons in the turn of the northern Andes. But now look at the Amazon, the world's largest river. It's actually not one river. It's like 100 or 200 rivers. I don't even know the number. Someone else does. But there are a lot of rivers. Every one of those rivers has tributaries. Every one of those tributaries ends up being as small as these streams here. So if you imagine starting stream bed by stream bed, it could cover the entire Amazon, at least in theory. And so if we wanted to regenerate all of South America, we would go stream bed by stream bed, up to, the fra up to the fractals, you know, the branches, up to the small rivers, up to the big rivers, up to the Amazon. And the Andes, what are mountains? They're a set of drainages of river valleys. For anyone who lives in California, Oregon, or Washington, if all those western running rivers running off the mountains, the Andes are no different. And so, to imagine that you could go stream bed by stream bed and regenerate a continent, is how you can regenerate a planet. And so what we're talking about here is we're prototyping the, the cultural pattern of human relationship to land for the entire planet within one territory. 
documenting and explaining as we go how to do it so this entire landscape becomes the teacher for the rest of the world. Right, yeah, so this is where this whole network of community watersheds becomes important, prototyping that pro-social thing that brings the neighbors and people in that area together and restoring your area, your local area, but that's kind of part of this larger fractal and it scales up um, the whole water movement. Yeah, and just to give one example of that from another context, I remember learning about the history of the spotted owl and the conflicts between the loggers and the environmentalists in Oregon, which was really famous about 20 years ago, maybe a little longer, it lasted for a long time. What a lot of people don't know, and what Alan Honick, the uh, documentary filmmaker, uh, showed in a video he produced, was that the pro-social process governing the commons is how they addressed it. And the way it happened was like this. There were places where logging companies had put in logging roads. And there was a year where there was a really heavy rain event, wiping out a lot of those roads because of where they were positioned. And it did a lot of damage to the river and to the forest. And even the logging companies lost a lot of money, couldn't access the, the logging land. And they became aligned and shared purpose with the environmentalists without knowing it. And a couple of very skilled facilitators gathered together the worst enemies, the people on both sides, and showed them that they had a common purpose. And through that common purpose, they created a framework of a different forestry management system around how they accessed the roads, but they did it through watershed restoration. They used the rivers of Oregon, which if you've never been to Oregon, oh my God, there are these massive, beautiful rivers. They did this down the Sayuslaw River, for those who know where that is. And the Sayuslaw River was the heart of the spotted owl controversy. And so what's interesting is this pro-social process can be taken to places with decades old conflicts and bring some of the most entrenched competitive interests and can bring them into alignment. And so the example of the logging companies coming together with the environmentalists in Oregon is such an example of you know, the odd couple, the unexpected bedmates, the people you'd never imagine were co-creating a future. The river is what brought them together. And that's how powerful this approach can be. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Joe. <laughs> really appreciate sharing your knowledge and wisdom. <laughs>